Hi, everyone. I'm Brady Volt, founder of NimbleThis and a Volt Firm. Our episode today is on Doxus primary channel impairments and a recap of the Anga show. With us today is John Downey, CMTS technical leader at Cisco Systems. John, welcome back. Hey, first time caller. <laughs> first time caller. <laughs> Long time <laughs> listener. <laughs> yeah. All right, John, we have a lot to go through today. I'm just, we're going to start off with our first question that we have, which is on Dox's primary downstream. This is sent to us from Troy from Canada. So, Troy, hope you're watching us today. We're going to be covering your question on Dox's primary downstreams. We're going to jump right in your question, kind of copy it and paste it in a PowerPoint here. So for those of you listening, we'll cover as much as we can. Those of you watching, you'll see some of the gory details we're going into. So the question is, throw it up on the screen here. We have a number of modems, modems A through F. They have six primary downstreams starting at 597 going up to 609 megahertz. And they have six upstreams. Well, they have upstreams, uh, actually three different upstreams, uh, 21 megahertz, 25 megahertz, 32, 38, and 21 megahertz, depending on which modem it's on or which, which modem it is. Uh, so there's two questions here. One is, you know, if there's a significant amount of upstream noise at, for example, 21 megahertz, would modems A, B, and F, which are all locked to 21 megahertz, go off stream? Um, well, let's go to the next slide, the slides I sent you. All right. Let's show a graphic, right? Yeah. So the first one there is the spectrum allocation. And looking at the upstream frequencies he mentioned, I surmise that the first two channels are 3.2 megahertz. The 21 and 25 megahertz. Yeah, the separation wasn't enough to be 6.4, right? Right. Uh, so I figured the first two might be 3.2, and the next two were probably 6.4 megahertz wide. 32 and 38 like, megahertz. Yeah, and it, and, and he might be rounding things off, right? It might be 32 and 38.4. Because technically, 32 and 38 would overlap as well if it was a 6.4 separation, right? Correct. He's probably like just he knocked off his decimal point, something. Um, so let's just make that assumption that it's, you know, two lower channels that are smaller in channel width, which might get him a better MER, and then the two 6.4s. And there were four primary channels, and we're making the assumption it's not just DOCSIS 3.1, it's DOCSIS 3.0 bonding, right? Correct. They're going to, they and, should be locked to, to all four upstreams if they're available. Correct. And what I, I think the miscommunication is, we definitely utilize a primary downstream. So a modem will lock on a downstream primary, and then it will bond on all the channels it's supposed to bond on, depending on that modem's capability. So let's suppose, just for sake of argument, these are all four-channel capable modems. For downstream bonding, and and they're probably much more than that, right? But he listed four primary frequencies: five ninety one, five ninety seven, six hundred three, and six hundred nine. So Correct. let's just focus on those four frequencies for downstream, and then we have the four upstream frequencies. And let's assume the modems are doing four channel bonding on downstream and upstream. Right. Now the question was, what was the first question? Well, the first upstream. question is if one of the upstream frequencies. Is, is knocked offline due to an RF impairment, does that cause the modem to, does that cause impact to the subscriber or does that cause the modem to go offline? So there is no such thing as a primary upstream. So, and, and I, I think that's a good point. I think the reason people may think there's a primary upstream is because when the modem 
first comes online and registers with the CMTS, it uses just one upstream to do so. And a lot of people will think of that upstream as being a primary upstream because it's used for that initial communication with the CMTS. Correct. But then the CMTS and cable modem do the same ranging uh, time offsets, levels, pre-queue on all the other upstreams that modem is allowed to use for upstream bonding. So in essence, it's like all upstreams are primary. Correct. Once it's once it's come online and it's bonded to all four upstreams, all upstreams are treat, created or treated equally. Correct. They're all doing the station maintenance every 15 or so seconds. Uh, depending on this thing called T4 multiplier, it could be, it's four channel upstream bonding, the multiplier is four, 4x. So four times 15 is actually 60 seconds. So every 60 seconds, that modem's getting an update on each one of its upstreams. Yep. So if I lose one upstream, then the modem still has three upstreams to do station maintenance and stay online. So it's not going to get a T3 or T4 timeout, and it's going to stay online. Now, traffic on that upstream is going to be crappy, and the CMTS should see that and then put that modem in partial mode. Because remember, the CMTS is scheduling the traffic on the upstream. The modem doesn't really just throw traffic out. He's told which upstreams he's allowed to put traffic on. And the CMTS schedules it. So the CMTS sees noise and a bad MER and a bad uncorrectable factor on an upstream for a specific modem. The modem, the CMTS can say, hey, I just want to schedule traffic on upstream one. Well, that's, that's if the, if the upstream is still registered or if it's still available to the cable modem, right? It's going to keep trying to schedule traffic. That's an impaired upstream that you're talking about. Is that not correct? Correct. But, and here's the problem that the conundrum I see is, the station maintenance burst that keeps the modem online could be QPSK. It a could very be, low modulation. It punches yes. through noise. Yes, it punches it. That's a good way of saying it. It's very robust, and your data is at 64 qualm. Which so you very high MER. modulation does not punch yeah. through noise. Correct. So your MER could say, I'll give you a hypothetical, 20 dB MER. 64 qualm is going to get 100% uncorrectable fact. QPSK is going to be going to happy work. as a peach. Yep. So the modem is not going to go offline. It's going to think it's still good. Uh, ping doxis would work. Ping won't work because ping is using the 64 qualm. So here's a case where you know it's not working, but the CMTS says, hey, your, your station maintenance looks fine, so I'll let you keep using it. Right. But so I think. You've got to I, be able to stop that. I think the answer to the question is that channel can go off one upstream channel, even two upstream channels can go offline, or three upstream channels can go offline, but the modem's still going to be online. There's no impact to the modem at that point, other right. than if there's a high speed tier, you know, say they're trying to give 50 megabits per second in the upstream to this customer, they're never going to achieve 50 megabits per upstream with just, or per, per megabits per second on the upstream with just one upstream carrier or maybe just two upstream carriers. That's why we want to have them to have all four upstream channels in order to have that high speed tier. If it's a customer I, I with even, a three megabit I even, upstream. I even argued that I thought it would make a good uh, a patent for this. And that Ooh. was sort of like pack cable multimedia or some type of DQOS where if a modem ever dropped to lower than its capability, partial mode, it locked on a bonding group that was smaller than it actually could do, we should have a dynamic quas that says, here is what you registered on, here's the aggregate throughput, and even though you signed up for a one gig service, 
I'm not going to let you do it because you can't. Or I'm not going to let you do it because you would starve out everybody else. I like, I feel like the modem should be relegated to a cross that is half of what it could do. Right. You understand? Yep. Then it's stat muxing and uh, uh, probability of collision stuff is a lot less if you do half of what you could do. Like if I, if I had a 3.0 modem that dropped a 2.0 mode and it would sign up for 50 meg service, he still has a 50 meg service offering, but he's in 2.0 mode and now he's going to eat up the entire upstream channel or that entire downstream channel. Yeah. And now you're like, oh man, that one guy is screwing me up and I need to load balance or I need to move him around and he's not happy either because he's not operating the way he should be. So I, I have... I have an example here on my screen from our from the Nimbleus PNM application where it gets even worse in the upstream. And in this example, if you can see on the bottom, this modem should be doing eight channel bonding in the upstream. This is an 85 megahertz return. This is a case, a classic case where you know we're trying to offer really high speeds in the upstream, high speed tiers, maybe 50 megabits, maybe even 100 megabits per second in the upstream. We should be doing eight-channel bonding, but what you can see, one of the channels is red. That's the first channel at 43.5 megahertz. Two of the channels are green, which indicates that they're healthy, one at 30.10 and one at 36.8 megahertz. The rest of the upstream channels are showing gray. Those channels are all above 45.5 megahertz. So this is a 85 megahertz return, John. We've talked about this before. I bet you can guess why this DOCSIS cable modem is only bonding to three of its upstream channels. And the one channel at 45, 43 megahertz looks really, really bad and it's red. There's a house amp. Exactly. House this, amp 42 megahertz filter probably. There's a house amp in there. Modem should be bonding to eight upstreams, can only, can barely, can bond to two, can barely bond to that third one, and it's a house amp that's causing this. So, you know, another case in point, the modem's still online, uh, the subscriber's probably not getting near the sub- speeds that they should be getting. One of the channels is impaired, badly impaired, as, as we can see by the in-channel frequency response, or ICFR. The digital taps for that modem look horrible. Pre-equalizers trying to work really hard to keep that upstream online because it's in a diplex filter of that house amp. And, and so this is going to be a substantial, you know, this is obviously a house call that has to be made in order to fix what's going on there. So that gets into the second part of the question. So again, we can have multiple upstreams impaired. I like your idea for a patent where this would be a great area. Uh, you know, if you're not using PNM, well, we need your patent, John. If we're using PNM, we can clearly see uh, this example where the subscriber is having an issue. So go back, go back to, and you you can read this and show the picture at the same time. Yeah. So this is the go second back. part of this is on a downstream, right? So now we have downstream channels. Um, the question is, uh, so so there's a fault on the distribution somewhere that feeds a tap amp. So we're now we're talking about different modems. Um, if you have one downstream, say uh, in this case he's talking about uh, missing the downstream here, but yeah, one, show me the diagram I gave okay. you. Okay. Spectrum, but the next one. Oh, this and is the I, uh, this is the chart here. Here we go. Yeah, this is you. You have it was five ninety one, five ninety seven. Go ahead. So I, I listed the modems he mentioned and which primary they were using because there is a primary for downstream, right? So now, if uh, ask the question now, 
he says what? What if? I have to go back up to the question. Sorry. <laughs> so there's a fault on a distribution somewhere that feeds a tap, which modem DNF. The fault is such in a way that there is ingress, specifically at 609 megahertz. So much ingress that it essentially obliterates the qualm. And then he's saying, are both modems DNF affected? What effect does this have on either modem, i.e. flapping, packet loss, etc.? If the qualm is compromised, is the modem smart enough to switch to another primary frequency, or does it reboot? Let's go back to our, our thing. All right, so DNF are... 603 and 609, respectively. That's the primary they locked on. They're going to be bonding on all four of those frequencies. We know there's a problem somewhere in that distribution line, but it's only affecting 609, right? Or was it 603? 603 and 609. But he said it obliterated one qualm, not both of them. Correct. Yeah, so let's say it obliterated 609. Okay. So really, only modem F should reboot... Because if you lose the primary, basically all bets are off. The modem's going to go offline, get a T4 timeout, and it's going to rescan downstream, hopefully lock on a different primary that's clean, maybe 603, and come back up again. Correct. Now, when it comes back up again and 609 is bad, it's probably going to go and register in partial mode. And all the other modems that aren't using that channel for a primary, they won't go offline because they're not using it as a primary but they will see a problem. So the modem will say, it's something called a CM status message. It will tell the CMTS, hey, I have a problem with this one frequency that I'm trying to bond on. And then the CMTS can put that modem in downstream partial mode. So the modem stays online. It goes to partial mode. Now here's where it gets tricky. Depending on the CMTS vendor and the feature, what is implemented, the modem could end up putting all its traffic down its primary. So modem D right there might say, hey, I'm trying to do 200 meg, but now that I'm in partial mode, I have to put all my traffic under 603 because that's my primary. Now, with later code, we said, no, we will dynamically make a bonding group that's smaller. So if it was doing four-channel bonding and one of them was bad, it would just drop the three-channel bonding. Mm -hmm. That's the, the ultimate solution, right? You want to drop up to a subset bonding group or move to a different set of frequencies if you could. But... That might be even more difficult to move around because now you have to do DBCs and stuff like that, which is dynamic bonding change. Correct. And the dynamic bonding is more of a, that's more of a recent development across CMTS vendors. It used to be you had to create your own, you'd create like a 32-channel bonding group, a 24, a 16, an 8. You'd create these static bonding groups. The dynamic bonding group is so much more elegant because, as you said, you can go from like an 8-channel to a 7-channel bonding group if necessary. Correct. So I think that answer, let's go back to his questions again. Right. But there was, a, and, there was uh, another part where he says, now there's an upstream roll-off. Right? He talks about roll-offs and stuff like let's that. Let's go back. Let's go back. It says, are both modems DNF, or no, back to his questions. It says, are both modems DNF affected? Yes. The one that's using the primary, which was, uh, F was 609 and 609 is bad. So F would go offline. D would go to partial mode. F would reboot and hopefully show up in partial mode itself. Right. And he says, what effect does this have on other similar modems? It really depends on where that fault is, right? Correct. Any modem downstream of that fault is going to have the same problem. As you described, absolutely. 
if, if it's it if depends. network, <laughs> no big deal, right? Yep. Uh, if the qualm is compromised, is the modem smart enough to switch to another primary frequency? It won't switch to another primary frequency. It, the one that got knocked offline will reboot and, and it'll find a different primary frequency. It's basically going to range and register with a exactly. new primary frequency. It's going to have to yeah. search for that new primary frequency until yeah. the old primary frequency is, has, you know, has basically come out of whatever impairment is causing it. And he talks about roll-offs and noise and, and other impairments that can happen on that primary frequency. So I had a, a couple of different slides here. So we're seeing here there's some channels missing in the middle. You know, what happened to those channels? We look at the full band capture spectrum, and, and this is a, a fairly impaired modem where um, we have some standing waves and some significant roll-off in the middle, which may be caused by water. And that can cause exactly what he's talking about, heavy roll-off, and can cause really low signal levels on some of the SC qualm channels. And that causes those SC qualm channels to basically be unlockable by the cable modem. And we see the same thing here. The red channels, those are all locked too. They're, they're all being able to be locked to by the modem, 32 channels of them. The blue channels are OFDM channels. Um, so they're, they're not going to be lockable to the modem, but we can see here because of standing waves, um, SE QAM, uh, you know, well, we're locked to them, but the modulation level may not be supportable, supported where we can actually transmit data over the OFDM channels. And this is where we get into something called PMA, or Profile Management Application. Uh, John, I think we've talked about that before. We can look at the RXMER, the measurement of the MER of each subcarrier coming back, and then we can tune the CCAP, or CMTS, to make sure that the OFDM channels, the modulation in those subcarriers that we're sending to the modems, could potentially compensate for this. But that's a, that's a huge could, because this is probably an impairment uh, inside a subscriber's home that's causing this much degradation of the RF signals. And that, that last graph, am I reading that correctly, that the full bandwidth capture puts OFDM still in 6 megahertz chunks? Yeah, this is part of the DOCSIS specification here where we can measure the RF power of the OFDM channel in 6 megahertz chunks. And I think that was done so the Really, it gave RF technicians a way of comparing the SC qualms to the OFDM channels uh, yeah. from a power standpoint measurement capability. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it's apples to apples at that point, right? Yep. The only thing that screws people up is uh, Annex A. <laughs> yes. In Europe, you know, single carrier qualm Annex A is 8 megahertz. But DOCSIS 3.1 did not, doesn't have an Annex A and experience. Correct. Once so we went to DOCSIS 3.1, everything was standardized on 6 megahertz across the board. Um, for SC qualm and even me power measurements of OFDM and uh, OFDM channels in the downstream. So we could do something like what you're seeing in this chart, where we compare the powers of SC qualm and OFDM channels just to get that nice baseline reference. Okay. So I think we covered the question for Troy, and we, we got those answers measured, or got those answers cleared out. He had another upstream, right? The last one was the uh, 38 megahertz upstream roll-off. Is that what you said? Yes, but I, you know, I think that's still covered because whether it's whether it's roll-off that will cause the level to be well, roll-off will cause the modem to transmit at a higher level, and once that level reaches the max transmit of the cable modem, uh, then that channel is going to uh, go offline and, and basically be an 
offline or impaired, not impaired, but partial mode. Um, So it's the same effect of whether there's noise or too much roll off attenuation. And you would hope that pre-EQ would help with some of that roll off. Yeah, pre-EQ will help until the modem reaches, again, its max transmit power. Correct. So, okay. okay, so that's our question. Next up is uh, Angacom. The Angacom happened last week. It was a virtual event, but that did not affect uh, the content of the presentations. We didn't have vendors. We had really good presentations that went on. And uh, I know you, you, we both uh, saw the presentations. I was, uh, I was involved in some of the presentations myself. Uh, so what were your initial, you have any initial thoughts before we jump into covering some of them? Um, I, I like that they were pre-recorded yes. and so much so that they didn't even filter out or cut out any mess ups. <laughs> so it actually felt live. It felt live. And, and I like, uh, and I think that aspect of it made it a little bit more, uh, interesting because the, and that was the intent of it. We, we did pre-record it, but there were no retakes. And even yeah. like if, uh, if someone went too long, uh, we cut them off just like it was a real session at their 15-minute time. It's like, hey, your time's up. Next speaker has to go. Uh, yeah. So we have no retakes, no no redubbing or anything like that, I, unless there was like a critical error where someone's computer crashed. That was the only opportunity for a retake. Uh, you know, okay, we'll give you time for your computer to reboot, and then we're back at it and going on. So it was, even though we recorded, it was like a live event. Yeah, and it was, it was good because... Um, I could actually chat with the author while he was speaking, even though he wasn't speaking, right? While the event is going on, while they're doing the replay back. So a really nice intermix of uh, the virtual plus live um, event because you could have that interaction with the author. I think it was a very good blend the way that they did that. Um, definitely something to look at for the future because the, the challenge of trying to do, like we're doing a live stream now, which is fine because it's, uh, just a couple of us, plus we've got our, our great editor over here to my left or to my right. Um, but if one of our computer crashes, you know, this live stream goes down. And so when you're doing that with so many people in a live event, that can be very catastrophic. Um, so I do have some slides prepared so that we, you know, we can go talk about some of the things I, I think uh, would like to ask everyone, you know, definitely hit the subscribe button and give us a thumbs up that is uh, greatly appreciated. But as we go into the Angacom slides here, let's talk about the first one, um, taking some notes. This first one was on fixed mobile convergence. Uh, John Chapman was was the first up speaking. I just grabbed one slide from him. Uh, so fixed mobile convergence, or FMC, is you know really how we can integrate wireless, 5G, uh, DOCSIS, and PON all together. I like the slide that he put together here because it really showed how everything plays so integrated together, whether you're a telecom provider, a pawn, you're a cable operator providing PON, DOCSIS, Wi-Fi, and LTE. It was inter- in- in- interesting, his conversation on how integrated LTE and Wi-Fi are. I think his statement was they're more similar than they are uh, different from each other, and uh, that was intriguing to me in his part of the presentation. And then as they migrate to 5G, it becomes a question for cable operators is, you know, how much 5G do I deploy in an area or how much Wi-Fi do I deploy in an area because of the similarities between them. And it doesn't, at that point, it doesn't really matter whether I'm deploying Doxus or Pawn. It's, it's just a pipe that allows me to 
uh, deploy more value-added services over top of that. The architecture itself is very common. John, are you still there? Yes, I'm. I'm uh, I just I never saw you that quiet for that long of a period of time. And uh, I was going to add in that uh, I listened in on the Angus stuff. The time zone difference was a little messy, right? Because it's uh, would start early, but because of the pre-recorded sessions, once it started, you could actually fast forward through the session. Yeah, sometimes we did that too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so John also talked about a lot of core convergence, and you know this was a common theme that I found throughout a number of the sessions, particularly on Doxis, that I, I found very compelling. Part of um, whether it's 5G, whether it's Doxis 4.0, is all of these services start to become virtualized. We'll see more of this as we go through. Um, that if you have a 5G network, a Wi-Fi network, a Doxis network, these these networks should all be able to back one another up. Um, so you know, if your Doxis network goes down, or a portion of your Doxis network goes down, you should have a 5G network that can help back up your, your Doxis network while you're, you're repairing. Your 5G network should help back up your Doxis network while you're repairing it, and vice versa. And I thought that concept of having redundant networks was a really exciting idea for the future of, of our industry overall, that you, know, you can have that sort of redundancy throughout the network. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean... Uh... People do it today, but they do it kind of manually, right? If my Wi-Fi or my modem goes down, yes. I use my mobile device as a hotspot. <laughs> but it's sort of a rush type thing to do that. And what yeah. he's talking about, you know, rather than homeowners doing this or businesses doing this, it's something that the uh, the cable operator does. This is just a natural growth of their infrastructure because they're they are looking at if they're not doing it already, they are looking at deploying five G. Uh, we know many operators are already deploying community Wi-Fi, and now it, you know, it's a matter of expanding that in, into throughout their network to deploy Wi-Fi, to deploy 5G, and these just become redundant networks. So very exciting what, what uh, John's take on that was and, and some of the other uh, presenters. Eric Keaton from Intel was up next on the panel. He was talking about edge compute. And again, it was another sort of tag on uh, into John's and the rest of the presentations here where we see the ability. Uh, so edge compute, we're starting to virtualize everything. Virtualization was a big part of a lot of the presentations, um, including Doxis 4.0. Uh, but when you get into the virtualizations, um, virtualization and network, the capability to expand beyond just what you have with a, a, our traditional CMTS, to be able to go beyond just Doxis and to get into mobile networks, to pawn networks. He has in here like smart cities to get into IoT and, and integrate those back in because it's, you know, we're no longer just Doxis anymore. We're, we're IP networks. Uh, Doxis is now just a portion of our IP networks. That gets really exciting of what we can do there. Um, he talked about SD-WAN and the ability to put on-prem versus edge-prem compute. So pushing that edge compute to the end and giving this thing the ability to tie that all the way back to our data centers. A lot of exciting things and a lot of capabilities in that. John, I just, I, I feel like... I don't know what to say when you're that quiet, man. <laughs> <laughs> I should really not move at all. So yes, yes. <laughs> so um, 
Hanno Naras of Teleste was up next, and he really focused on the MacFi and FMA and sort of how we've gone there, um, talking about, you know, what well, we, we have looked at MacFi in the past and we looked at FMA and then sort of as an industry, why we're moving to MacFi, um, you know, kind of saying the big iron is starting to age out and we need to do it. And then MacFi is addressing things like latency, power consumption in the head end. Uh, virtualization of the head and 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 those types of areas. Um, so you know, again, I'm just very lightly touching on these presentations. Recommend everyone go and get the, all the details on that. Um, but I, I think there's uh, interesting opportunities like that. Um, what what's your take on MacFi at this point, John? Yeah, I and last year I talked about DAA, the power of DAA, just converting analog fiber to digital fiber. And I said, I don't care what you do, remote fire, remote Mac fire, flexible Mac architecture, just converting that analog fiber to digital fiber solves a lot of problems. And that should be our first step. And that is the first step if we want to do 204 megahertz upstream, I believe. Uh, it's the next step if we want to virtualize the CMTS. You're not going to virtualize. You have RF somewhere, so you have to put it out in the field. Um, so if you want to take the core and virtualize it, the RF has to go somewhere whether it's MacFi or RemoteFi. RemoteFi came out first, and it was keep it simple, stupid, you know, the KISS principle. Um, and it's been interoper interoperating with other people's equipment for a couple of years now. So uh, it's deployed now, but it's not without its own headaches, hurdles, lessons learned, uh, timing, uh, distance, worrying about latency. So we address all those little things, and, uh, and then we look at, all right, does Mac 5 make sense? Yeah, it does. Depending on cost, implementation, interoperability, is it available? And do I need it for longer distances or is it just a typical 20 kilometer node where I did a change out of an analog node to uh, a remote 5 node? Well, remote 5 might work fine. So I think um, that's sort of where we're at is, and that's been a fight from the beginning. What about latency? What about distance? Well, if I'm going to collapse hub sites, and I need to do remote buy, that might be tough if the distance is really long on that convergent connect network, the SIN, the digital fiber. Uh, and then I got to worry about latency and request grant cycle, which is why we came out with LLD, right? Low latency doxes. Yep. And MAC5 might be an easy solution to those scenarios where you're trying to collapse hub sites. Like I have a centralized head end and I'm going to go a thousand kilometers to a, a hub site that's duplicating all my content. Why do I need to duplicate content? I can have all my content centrally located and just do MacFi a thousand kilometers and then a node or just the cable modems with a hundred feet of coax or thousand feet of coax. So, know? so does MacFi though become the replacement for RFOG in rural areas? Because I, I know you had some discussions with RFOG and why it doesn't work with OFDMA. Um, yeah. And, that, and that's because we get rid of the dim distance limitation with MacFi. If we can make MacFi small enough in cost effectiveness, uh, cost effectiveness, co thank you. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. trying to say. Cost, cost effective enough. Yes, yeah. thank you. Does it become the solution to, to uh, overcome our fog or to become our replacement for our fog? Yeah, well, let's look. Why, is, why was our fog even a thing? Uh, because it, it competes with fiber to the home. It is fiber to the home, right? Right. But you couldn't do EPON GPON if you had an analog video content because EPON GPON is all IP. 
So if you needed to offer legacy set-top boxes and analog video, if you will, it could be QAM, but MPEG-2, QAM, um, you have old set-top boxes, you couldn't do it over EPON, GPON. So I've seen people do EPON, GPON for high-speed data and run RFOG just for video. So now you had two networks. It's like, wow, what a, it's redundant, you know? And Mac um, 5 is not going to fix that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but if I convert everything to IP and I don't have legacy set-top boxes, I have all over-the-top video, um, at some point you might say, why don't I do GPON? You know? Yep. Like we talked about in a, in a greenfield scenario, you do fiber to the home. Would you do RFOG? The only reason I do RFOG is if I had to provide analog video still. Yeah, so I mean, what are the cost prohibitive reasons that operators are not running out GPON or EPON into brownfields is because it's that cost to drop the tap uh, yeah. into, the, the drop into everyone's home. That's, that's the most expensive part in optics right now. Correct. So if we ran fiber deeper to the curb, to the tap, and the tap was or the MacFi tap. Yeah, I think yeah. that's it. Has to it has to be that the MacFi. It could be an RFi. Um, it doesn't really matter. You do digital fiber to the tap, and that tap's feeding eight people. Your service group now is eight people. Right. You know, on a and then believe it or not, that's still cheaper than doing fiber to the home it's because still, that last drop it, cable. You're talking about access to the person's house, trenching, digging it up. There's a lot more work there than just saying There's definitely no. cost involved. Absolutely. So we have some questions uh, that have just come in now on, on the chat room. We'll go ahead and cover those. Um, right. So we have a whole year from uh, TND, JXD. Gosh, you could make an easier username for me there, <laughs> even if it's anonymous. Uh, we had a whole year of testing and are now finally live. He's talking about remote FI, so that's awesome. Good to hear that. Uh, some of the challenges we have are converting legacy QAM to IP, so he's exactly nailing the topic we just covered, John. Um, and I, I hope that's benefiting you guys, uh, you know, getting rid of the set-top boxes. I imagine that was one of your challenges that, you're going on, that you've gone through. And then you're also talking about, you know, once you get rid of all the analog, uh, T-N-D-J-X-D colon, uh, you, you have the challenges of upstream return monitoring, forward path monitoring, because you no longer have that analog leak, link. It's an all-digital link to the RFI. It would be the same if it's a MACFI as well, as John men mentioned. But it's good to hear that the big, biggest improvement, and this is what we would expect when you get rid of the analog optics, was you've got great upstream SNR. We'd also expect that your, I'm hoping your downstream MER also improved at the same time. Yeah. So no longer limited. You know, an analog optical link, the bigger the link budget, the worse the performance. Yep. You were well aware of that one with the testing we used to do, right? Yes, um, the NPR curves that we would generate. Yeah. It's like every dB of fiber loss is 2 dB hit of RF. Yeah. Because one's a 10 log, one's a 20 log. So you would actually take a pretty big hit when you start going longer distance than an analog link. Whereas digital, it's on, off, on, off, on, off, one, zero. Um, and so you can, you, a digital signal, you can take it and you can run it through another switch. Right. And cool. it's basically like a repeater. You have, you can increase the signal and you have absolutely no degradation to the signal quality. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I, I've not been surprised to see a 50 dBMER on the downstream and a 40 or so dBMER on the upstream. Because I'm putting the, the chipset now in the node itself. Now, granted, you might not get that performance when you go through the amplification in the node. 
because now you're adding in the noise figure and all that of the, the node electronics. Yes. RPD and Mac 5, that's just one device that might be in the lid of the node. Yep. Then you have to go through the RF portion of the node. And it's diplex motors and all that stuff. But uh, well, he was mentioning something else about, oh, is MER? Oh, upstream triggered spectrum capture. Yes, UTSC. It's been very, right. it's very hot on my list. So that's that's part of uh, a DOCSIS specification that allows us to look at the return pass spectrum using DOCSIS MIBS, and it is real. It is live. It's uh, it's working for a number of CMTS vendors. We're hoping to get it working for all CMTS vendors. The word of caution there is, it is taking that upstream RF signal, like spectrum analysis stuff, and sending it on the upstream. Through your SIN, which is the Convergent and Connect Network, it is using traffic speed. Mm-hmm. How much could be more than you think if you don't set it up properly? Right. Because if it's continuously triggering on four different legs of a node, all independent, and you're trying to send it on one digital link all the time, uh, it could be eating up your your SIN. Yes, and we and, you know we had that same conversation about. Uh, uh, the other, the other method, which is uses the, um, UD, uses the out of band. Um, it still comes across your sin. It, it's the, uh, out of band NDR, NDF, band. Yeah. uh, oh, or whether they do it over SCTE 552551. Any way yeah. that you're doing return path monitoring or, uh, whether it's for leakage or anything like that, it's all using bandwidth over your SYN. And you have to be careful how you're how you're configuring that and setting it up and mon- and also monitoring that and make sure, making sure that you're not over-utilizing your SYN. And the SYN is just a digital link between the head end and your remote FI device or your Mac FI device. Yeah. One, one that really surprised me was in Europe, they like to carry the FM radio over their network. They're required to. to. 88 to 108 megahertz and put it on a digital link it was like 50 megabits per second i think yes or more it all adds up it all adds up so you have to monitor what the utilization is on your sin because you may have these services that are not services sending or receiving data to subscribers but it's for there for monitoring the you you know your return path monitoring forward path monitoring leakage fm radio these all add up and they can congest your SIN, but you may not be looking at that as the reason that your SIN is connect is, is overutilized. You might be just looking at your DOCSIS traffic and say, well, I don't have much DOCSIS traffic. Why am I congested? Yes. Because of all the other stuff in the background you don't know about. So all this, you know, still DOCSIS 3.1 is on the way to 10G, building a future-proof network, which is a, another fantastic session at Angacom. I highly recommend everyone watch this one. Um, this is uh, your own Putsy, and I, I apologize if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. Uh, even I, I listened to it a number of times uh, from Comscope. He gave a, a, a very nice presentation that uh, covered like DOCSIS 4.0, features of it, DOCSIS 3.1, how we got there, um, what is FNA, FMA, flexible Mac architecture, the key objectives to it, remote Mac Fi. Um, so we, are, we already kind of talked about some of this, John, and what the benefits are. Uh, he did run out of time before he really got, I think, to some of the meat of, of his presentation. So we, we did miss out on that. Uh, but very good presentation nonetheless. Uh, and if you want to learn more about FMA, Flexible Mac Architecture, highly recommend his presentation. Right after he was up, 
we had David Whitehead from Harmonic, and he gave another uh, good presentation, again, talking about virtualization. I think this was a good theme uh, on Doxus 4.0 and virtualization. Again, how it's just, you know, so everyone seems to be virtualizing their CMTSs, and there was a big surprise that I had at the end of this, John, which we talked about, too. Uh, so I hope everyone keeps listening to this. There's a surprise at the end here. Um, virtualization, what we see here again, you know, it's across the top. There's, uh, we see your typical analog node, AMPs, that all works with a virtualized CMTS. RFI node, that all works with a CMTS. But then it gets exciting. Right off the RFI node is an OLT, uh, feeding ONUs to towers, 5G towers. And then, and then at the bottom, um, the RFI node fiber deep into homes. And I think that's what you were getting at, John. It's like, you know, we can, with DOCSIS 3.1, we can drive fiber deep all the way to the homes and also businesses, which you know, part of that. Yeah, go ahead, John. MDUs. MDUs, you know? absolutely. Um, so you can have an RFI node feeding fiber into MDUs. That can be part of a cable operator's core architecture. You know, we don't have to be just doxis, doxis, doxis. We can have fiber coming right off of an RFI node and with an SFP in it and be sending 10G PON or 10G Ethernet or whatever you want to call that into buildings like MDUs, into businesses, and compete very, very well with anyone who's out there and competing with us. And then the, the final part of this, which I, I found, and we kind of talked about this, John, how, you know, why was RFOG put out there? RFOG was put out there so we could continue to add our legacy video systems to our, our DOCSIS systems and send that a long way. Um, so uh, Julius Tinkman um, from Teleste gave a great presentation on how frustrating it has been to try to continue to drive video and data over our existing networks. And he kind of shows this revolving circle of development and delays and integration and more development and delays and integration that trying to maintain video, our, our legacy video with our IP video is, is just frustrating. And the time to get to a Full DAA rollout with legacy video, it just gets pushed continuously, continuously pushed out. So he had a great presentation on that. And I don't know that it's ever going to happen. <laughs> We're actually really going to get uh, a DAA rollout with uh, full legacy video. I, I think, I think as uh, our, our friend in the chat room, TNDJXD, said, uh, it's just well, like what he did. They went all IP video, and I really think um, every operator should be looking and focusing on the full IP. Biting the bullet, right? Saying, you know, um, yeah, I might have a million set-top boxes, uh, <laughs> but I got to do it at some point. And the services I can offer with an IP set-top box are far and above the legacy set-top box, and it's what customers want. Yep, customers want to. Uh, what about all the cord cutters, right? They don't. We always talk about a la carte. I only want to pick up five channels. Well, with IP video, you can, you know. Um, but the you have so much more capability with it, and it's going to simplify your back. Your head end is going to go from this massive, big head end. It consumes tons of power, tons of heat. When you go to an all IP head end, it collapses into 
set into a couple of racks. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a couple of servers. And when you virtualize your CMTS, that virtualized CMTS gets converted into a couple of servers as well. So that is the future. Uh, also, I want to I want to point out that the term virtualization is kind of generic now because I don't know. There's another term, cloudification. Yep. <laughs> so virtual or cloud. Uh, really, we're talking. It's kind of semantics, but uh, like we have the cloud native uh, broadband router now. Yeah. We started out with a virtualization and said, "Nah, we don't want to just virtualize an old CMTS. We want to revamp the whole thing and and look at what Google and Amazon and those guys have done uh, doing through the cloud." So it's a so I don't know if it's semantics or not, but I think we're all talking the same thing now, yeah. right? So, John, I know you're running short on time. There's just a couple more slides I want to hit because they're they were so amazing from from Angacom. Uh, the first one, Tom Clunan from Aris, he he basically said, "Look, this is what COVID did to us. We we kind of analyze it, and we in in the in basically the the time that we had COVID, we had um, one year of increased traffic load in the one month that COVID hit. It basically did a as a one point one x multiplier in the downstream and a one point three x multiplier." in the upstream. Such a cool presentation he did on that. The other thing that he talked about, and I think this is going to be hugely controversial, but we're going to find out what happens in the future. He's basically saying Nielsen's law is is now broken. We're no longer going to follow it. So we can see, you know, since 1982, we followed the traffic growth laws, both in the upstream and in the downstream, up until 2016. And now after 2016, he said, you know, we, we did this massive jump to one gigabit per second in the downstream and 35 megabits per second in the upstream. And after that, it's no longer going to happen like that. We're going to flatline at a one gigabits per second. We're going to need to boost the upstream to 500 megabits per second in order to remain competitive. But after that, Nielsen Law is, is going to be slowed. I think that's I just don't know what to think about that because, you know, normally we, we talk about like Moore's law, Nielsen's law, Shannon's law, you know, you don't tug on Superman's cape and you don't spit in the wind and you don't mess around with Jim. <laughs> you don't do things like that with these laws either. And, and now that we're, we're like saying they're going to change, I think that's going to be controversial. Um, but we're going to find out how it plays out. And every time we say, you know, a, a percentage of a small number is a small number. But if you try to keep that same percentage and you get bigger numbers, it just it just gets crazy, right? Uh, we went to one gig, a ten percent for one gig is a hundred meg, whereas ten percent of one meg was only one point one meg. <laughs> you know, it was it wasn't that big of a jump. Now that we're such big numbers, it's bigger jumps. Uh, and we always said, oh well, you know, we have everything we need. Is it competitive pressure? That might be one thing. But I still believe there'll be applications that we invent that will use it. Yep. And then also the the so I, yeah, I agree with you on that side. Like there's going to be more apps and killer apps. Part of what came out in the chat, uh, the question and answer side of that presentation was there is only so much that the human eye, the human brain, the human ear can consume from a bandwidth perspective. And that was sort of the argument is why they say Nielsen's law from a data width is going to flatten out. So that was the argument again. So I'm torn as to where that's going to go. 
who's to say this bandwidth is for human consumption? Yeah, there you go. There is Skynet that we have to look at as yeah. well. <laughs> we got to feed the robots and the machines, man. <laughs> That's it. So the big surprise that I got uh, during my my um, session was when Jason Miller was presenting, and he was he was showing all the really cool screens that Cisco is working on for their virtual CMTS and how those screens are going to manage it. And there's not going to be really much of a CLI left. Of course, I fell on the floor because what am I going to do without a CLI? And where am I going to type? And, you know, what am yeah. I going to do? But I was super excited to hear and see the great stuff you guys are doing on your virtual CMTS. I can't wait, John, for you and I to do more uh, and talk about your virtual CMTS. Well, I'm sure we'll have Jason Miller on uh, to talk more about that in the future. I mean, GUI, GUI give you so much, right? They, a GUI, a graphical user interface, just puts so much in front of your face. And you can connect. And it gives history. And yeah, yeah, I mean, graphical interfaces give you so much. So real time information, you know, instead of running a command over and over again to see a pattern. Yep. You actually get the information real time. But that'll be for a future episode. We'll talk more about John. I know you have a timeline coming up to commit, so I'm going to let you go. Thank you for your time today. I again recommend everyone. These Angacom presentations are still available online. Go to Angacom. I think it's .de and check them out. So much good material on there. We just gave you a very high level of taste of what you can see. Lots of good material. Thanks, everyone, for watching. And John has one more thing, as usual. One more plug. I just wrote an article, uh, how to achieve or how to how to achieve one gigabit per second upstream speed. 204 is the answer. And I submitted it to Broadband Library's fall edition. Awesome. So hopefully the uh, the article will come out in the fall edition. We'll be looking forward to it, John. All right. Thanks, everyone. So long.